Today's scripture reading comes from John 20, verses 1 to verse 18. That's John 20, verses 1 to verse 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. May God help us to hear his word. Thank you, Hannah for reading God's word for us this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we celebrate the mystery today that you sent your only son, wrapped him in the flesh of a Palestinian Jew, and sacrificed him on the altar of the cross. We celebrate the mystery that death could not conquer him. And so we rejoice on this Resurrection Sunday. But Father, while we are rejoicing, we also remember those among us who grieve. We remember today the Nyam family that is preparing to send the remains of their mother back to the earth. But we celebrate because you have changed her permanent address. So we ask you even now as they are grieving, Help them to remember you are the God of comfort. Help us to remember that life does not end in the grave for those who believe. Easter stands even today, testimony of that glorious mystery. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as many of you probably already know, the smallest thing can make the biggest impact. In fact, I didn't arrive at church this morning looking like this. I, I actually arrived 
without my glasses. Inexplicably, I got on the bus, could have been any number, somehow I got on the right bus. And Sherry brought me this rather small thing and, oh hey, there you are. It makes a big difference. Even the, the smallest things can make a huge difference. In fact, on April the 10th, 2nd Officer David Blaine got some discouraging news. It was going to be the biggest launch of the biggest ship, and he was scheduled to be 2nd Officer. And then he found out, because it was such a prestigious launch, someone requested a higher-ranking officer, and he had to immediately disembark. So in disappointment, and in his rush to get off the boat, he forgot to leave one small but significant thing, a key to the locker where the ship's binoculars were kept. Much later, a surviving navigator said this, if but for those binoculars, 1,500 souls may have been saved. Small things can make a huge impact. They, they seem insignificant to us. They may even be a bit unusual, but even the smallest details, the, the, the shortest event in your life could totally change the trajectory of your eternity. In 1905, a uh, young Austrian boy who never suffered from a lack of self-confidence decided that he was the best artist he knew. By the way, if you Google his name, you can find his artwork online. And so in this, you know, proud moment, he decided, why am I wasting time in a school that's teaching me maths and reading when I just need to go to art school? So he himself, without his parents' permission, dropped out of school, marched up to the prestigious Vienna School of Art, and applied with his resume, his portfolio in hand. And it just so happened that the dean of the art school, being Jewish, had an eye for art. He looked it over and declared, this young man has pride but no artistic ability. You know, it's a small thing, right? Who here hasn't received rejection? Like all of us, if we live in this world, we've experienced rejection at some point. We, we've been dismissed. You know, we've been discouraged. But this young man just allowed this resentment to simmer in his life until he became chancellor. That one small, I would say, Footnote in history, rejected from art school by a Jew. Powerfully impacted humanity. Small things can make a big difference. Now, on this Resurrection Sunday, I'm, I'm going to say something about Jesus. Really, Jesus Christ, Christ Greek, Greek Messiah. That was absolutely normal in the first century. I mean, Jesus wasn't extraordinary. He wasn't from an extraordinary town. He, he wasn't the first traveling religious leader who was establishing the foundations of his own sect. In fact, since the time of Jesus, there have been 1,100 approximately claims to the role of Jewish Messiah. It was extraordinarily normal. Thousands of religious teachers in the first century, all claiming to be something special, all carving out a religious you know, niche, all developing their followers, Jesus, that he was the Christ, incredibly normal. In fact, just in the first century alone, there was a long history of quote-unquote Jewish messiahs. Judas Maccabeus led a rebellion against the Seleucid Empire. His armies fought. 
They saw some success. And in the end, they were dead. Simon of Perea, he was the servant in Herod's court. He was the servant who rebelled. And that created all kinds of passion in the common man. What? Even a servant can rebel against his master, the king? He had extraordinary numbers of followers until the Romans chased him down and cut off his head. Then he was done. And Throngids, the shepherd, impressed people with incredible feats of strength. No one in the first century had seen a stronger man. He had followers who created an army. His four brothers were his four generals. They were all killed, and the shepherd wandered off into the desert and died there. And then Theotis and Judas of Galilee, you may have remembered them if you were here last year as we walked through the book of Acts. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Remember the Apostle Paul's teacher, Gamaliel? He mentions them in Acts chapter 5 when there was about to be a riot over Paul's claim that Jesus was somebody. And Gamaliel said in verses 26 and 27 of Acts 5, some time ago there was that fellow Theatus who pretended to be somebody. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed and all his followers went their various ways. The whole movement came to nothing. And after him, in the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee, he got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and his followers scattered. And then John the baptizer. Even the Pharisees and the scribes were going to see him. Huge crowds were coming up to see him. They were saying, oh, he must be Elijah resurrected. He's the new Messiah. He had whole throngs, even though he said, no, it's not me. The one is going to follow me. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. But still he had huge throngs of disciples until Herod cut off his head. And it was done. Because here's the thing. Most people have little enthusiasm for dead messiahs. The thing about Jesus is he was just an ordinary religious guy, except for one small detail, this empty tomb. As we look at our text this morning, we're going to explore what was it about that empty tomb that literally changed everything for these followers of Jesus Christ. I want to suggest that first of all, there was not resurrection belief. There was not resurrection conviction. The disciples, not even one of them said, yes, we knew this was going to happen all the time. The first thing they experienced was resurrection confusion. They didn't expect this was going to happen. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That is code for John. That's the way he described himself in his own gospel. He was the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid them. Now listen to me. Work with me on this. If, if these disciples were into some plot to totally upgrade their Messiah to Godship, they were not acting like it. By the time that Mary walked early in the morning to this tomb, Judas had already hung himself. Peter, that bold one who was going to take a sword and, and conquer all of the guards and, and, and the soldiers by cutting off a slave's ear, he had denied even knowing Jesus three times. 
And all of the disciples, save for one, had run off at the, curse, the crucifixion, afraid that they would be identified with this Messiah. They just ran away because nobody follows a dying Messiah, let alone a dead one. Mary's first response at seeing the empty tomb was not celebration. It was more grief, more tears, more confusion. This was her response. They've taken, they, you know who they are? Nobody knows who they are. Not when they have been talking not when they have stolen a body. Nobody knows who they are. The confusion is they have taken the body and none of us know where he's at. That was her first response. Those are not the words of a woman anticipating a resurrection. And, and, and what about the disciples' response? We can see them in verses 9 and 10. Uh, I love this painting, though it's probably not accurate. Nobody runs with their hands in prayer, or clutch to their heart. It's like a metaphor, right, of these anxious disciples running in response to Mary's message, running for the tomb, Peter and the disciple John, whom Jesus loved, running there, and he specifically says about himself, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That doesn't mean they did not understand Jesus' words. That means they did not understand the Old Testament witness that this Messiah must die and must rise from the dead. They were just simply confused. And then this. Imagine these disciples just hear this message. The Lord is gone. His body's nowhere. We don't know where it's at. They run. They look in. And then they go, nothing here. Let's go home. They had no plan. Because what they saw was unexpected. But secondly, there is some resurrection evidence in this empty tomb something happened three different things that turned grieving doubters into passionate believers three different things those first believers would say if they were standing right here the first thing they would say i believe is you know i i saw the empty tomb. We can see this in verse 8. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and he believed. Now it's interesting that it does not say what he believed. Because right after that, John writes, we didn't yet understand what the scripture says that the Messiah must die and then be resurrected. We, we didn't really understand it, so we just went home. But it was the beginning of belief. Do you understand belief is a process? God never asks of us blind faith. What he asks is, let him show you who he is. These disciples ran to the tomb, just began to believe. Siu Kim, who just lost his mother. He wrote something in her eulogy which I thought was significant. He quoted John Calvin, who said, all of us have imperfect belief. We are halfway Christians until he calls us home. We've learned to speak of salvation in a Western way, like it's a point. It happened. So we say, I'm saved, full stop. But in the Greek, the word actually, if we translated it literally, it would be more cumbersome. I am in the process of being saved. Why does that not cause me anxiety? Because my salvation is not my work. Your salvation, not even your faith, nor is your repentance your religious 
achievement. They are gifts that God gives us. And on this day, this empty tomb was a gift that Jesus left for his disciples. This was the first evidence. Now, uh, I find it fascinating that there is in verse 7 this specific mention of the linens unwrapped and lying in one spot and this face cloth, literally in Greek, folded up carefully, set aside by itself. Now, now here's what Facebook has done for us believers. It occasionally gives us fake news, and then it occasionally gives us news we actually just want to hear. <laughs> right? So there's this internet, this viral internet theology, Facebook theology going on, where, whereby this photo of an American-style napkin all folded up on a hard rock is there. And then have you heard the story, the theology of the folded napkin? And it points us back to Jewish rabbi traditions. You know, rabbis had their own servants. When they sat down and ate, the servant placed a napkin there. When they ate, they would wipe their hands and wipe their beards with it. If it was crumpled up and tossed down on the table, then that was indication, you know, that I'm done. But, but if the rabbi wipes his mouth, folds up the napkin and places it down on the table, walks off to, the, I don't know, rabbi bathroom, and then, then the, the servant needs to know he's folded it up neatly. That means what? He's coming back, and then we're all to be comforted. You see, that's the meaning of the folded napkin. Jesus is coming back, and we love Facebook. You know, and I, I don't want to wreck your, your, your Facebook theology, but I don't know of any rabbi tradition about the folded napkin. In fact, I researched this in the online Jewish encyclopedia. I went to several discovered Judaism websites, and I looked for this. And as far as I can tell, it's just a sweet internet comfort for Christians whose faith is fragile. Sorry. I believe he's coming back. But I don't need a folded napkin to tell me because his word says he's coming back. But it does create a couple of questions for me. If, as the chief priest designed, that the soldiers were supposed to tell this story, you know, he didn't rise from the dead. The disciples came and stole him. These are not Christians. These are grave robbers. Well, it seems inconceivable to me the grave robbers, assuming they were strong grave robbers and could roll that heavy stone away, it seems inconceivable that they would see this wrapped up body three days stinking in the grave and said, we smell it bad, let's feel it. Let's unwrap it and carry it out so we can feel you know, that rotting flesh. That seems inconceivable to me. And if they're robbing at night while the soldiers are sleeping... It also seems inconceivable to me they would say, hey, let's take our time and wrap everything nicely. This totally destroys lies and helps me believe something even more outrageous. Maybe it is true. The grave was empty. I saw it. That was the first evidence. There's second evidence we see in verse 16. Remember Mary, after she ran and told the disciples, she came back to the grave. You know how you've said, seen something and it, it's so mortifying, you've got to go and take a second look to make sure your eyes were faithful and it really is true. She went back again and was weeping at the grave. She, she looked in and saw angels. Now, now, don't think these winged creatures, because if angels really had wings, she wouldn't have said, oh, by the way, I'm crying because somebody stole the body of my master. No, she would have said, whoa. They, they looked like men. 
Angels means messengers of God. They were sitting right where Jesus lay, one at the head, one at the feet. And they asked her, who are you looking for? Through her tears, she said, they've taken my master. I don't know where they've taken him. And somehow at that moment, she could tell. You know how this happens when you're in a crowd? You can tell somebody's actually looking at somebody behind you. And so she turned around and saw him. The gardener surely must be the gardener. The only time she would assume it was Jesus is if she already believed and was expecting that Jesus was going to be resurrected. And if that was true, there would have been a worship service right there waiting for him to be resurrected. But they were all hiding. And she was still not believing this miracle, this small, empty tomb miracle, this detail. She said, I, I don't know where they've taken him. And then Jesus, listen, called her by name. Not, not just called her by name, but in her heart language said, Maria. Some of you are older believers. Do you remember the day when you realized that God was not actually an Englishman? Do, do you remember the, the day you realized God can speak my heart language? I was seven years old when I first realized God noticed little seven-year-old Canadian boys and I walked down the aisle and I took my pastor's hand and I was seven, but I still remember the song that our church was singing when I walked down that aisle. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for me for you. When Mary heard Maria, not Greek, but Aramaic, her own heart language, she responded in our heart language, Rabboni, which doesn't just mean teacher, it means my teacher. My teacher. She, she ran to embrace him. When you hear, when you sense the Lord is calling you, when you begin to feel like the pastor is just speaking directly to you, it's not his words, it's God calling you. When you begin to realize, I'm not here by accident. I didn't come because it's Easter. I came because he drew me here to speak my name. And I sense it. That churning in my heart. He knows me. And he longs for me to know him. That's evidence. It's not a convincing speech. It's not scientific proof. It's just evidence. It's the same evidence that Peter required when he was on that boat and the waves were all around him and Jesus came walking on the water. Every one of the disciples demonstrated that they believed in ghosts because they screamed in fear. And Jesus, from the water, standing on the waves, said, be calm, it's me. Do you remember Peter's response? He didn't say, well, Lord, if that's you, could you talk a little bit about the scientific principle of surface tension? Uh, could, could you give me a little seminar on how exactly you're doing that? What are the skill sets involved? No, he said, Lord, if it's you, Call me. Call, call me. Let me know you are the God that notices illiterate fishermen who are impulsive and make a constant mess of their lives. If it's you, call me out. That was evidence. And then third, there's this evidence. Yes, Richard Nixon. Uh, 
I don't know if you know the other man sitting there, Charles Colson. You know, Charles Colson represents what I think is a third evidence. And the third evidence, the third thing I think these disciples would say to us if they were standing right here is, you know, let me just say, nobody really wants to die for a lie. In uh, 1974, Charles Colson was one of the most powerful men in the world. He was the architect of the dirty tricks that became Watergate. And so in 1974, he and 11 other men were sent to prison for obstruction of justice. Charles Colson became a believer there. This man who was called the president's hatchet man, became a child of the king in prison. And he wrote this, I know the resurrection is a fact. Watergate proved it to me. Now, now that seems like a total disconnect, right? How in the world could Watergate, this political crisis that sent him and others to prison, how could that prove the mystery of the resurrection? And here's what he said. Listen to this. Watergate involved 12 of the most powerful men on the planet. And it took only three weeks for these men to say, okay, we were just lying. Three weeks to expose a lie in the hearts from the lips of 12 of the most powerful men on the planet. The disciples weren't powerful. They were just ordinary, less than ordinary, uneducated riffraff who weren't succeeding at life anyway. Twelve ordinary men who gave testimony of this empty tomb. And then for the next 40 years, they were beaten, they were whipped, they were stoned, they were imprisoned, and all but one of them killed, and never once did any of them change their story. If they were with us today, they would say, every one of us is going to die. But we're not going to die for a lie. It's evidence to my heart. Because just like this young brother who was baptized today, I was born and raised in a Christian home. Just like him, I decided I didn't like it. I looked for evidence to prove my lack of faith. Every single Sunday, sitting right where you are, Unfortunately, I didn't have Google, but I just worked it in my mind. I just decided that this preacher is talking rubbish, and I refused to believe it. In fact, I wanted him to know it. That's why I slouched in that chair. That's why I pretended everyone else in the back thought I was sleeping. I was just doing this. I needed him to know. You're scamming some people but you're not scamming a scammer. But then he pursued me and continued to call me. And I decided I'm going to die, but I am not going to die for a lie. Finally, there was a resurrection assignment. Actually, there were two. Jesus said to her in verses 17 and 18, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go. Hear this, but go. Now, I'm talking to church leaders. So, so if you're not a GBC church leader, you can kind of shut down for a few minutes. Church leaders, I know we spend all of our time trying to figure out how in the world can we get people to come. Do you know how opposite that is from Jesus? He was like, Go. If you're a follower of Christ, it's go. 
Go to my brothers, say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And so Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And he, she told them that he had said these things to her. So there was urgency in Jesus' words. First, he was sending Mary on assignment. Now, now you know what? If I could just take a sidebar, if, if this was a strategy, like let's say, you know, I've been a church growth consultant. If, if, if the disciples were hiring me as their church growth consultant, I, I, if Jesus was saying, oh, Ian, big shot, come and tell me how to do my business, I, I would say, here, I've got an idea, Jesus. Appear to Caiaphas. You know, just as he's trying to mend up that curtain in the temple. Appear to him. Show that guy. Because that guy's got influence, right? He's got a lot of networks. You know, once you show yourself to that guy, word will get out. Or, or maybe better still, just walk into Pilate's breakfast. He, he, just sit down with him. Say, you know, your wife was right about that dream. You tried to kill me, but you can't keep a good man down. Here I am. You know, that's good strategy. But, but what is God thinking? Appearing first to someone who in the first century doesn't even qualify to give testimony in court. A woman. Property. Slaves, donkeys, and women could not give court testimony. You see how outrageous God is. He doesn't need our cultural reinforcement. When the message is powerful, the messenger can be imperfect. So some of you who are thinking, I want to go, I want, I want to share, but I just don't know the Bible enough. Do you know that he rose from the dead? Do you know that he called you by name? Do you know that that grave remained empty? Go tell what you know to be true about Jesus. You qualify for that. Everything else, the power is in the gospel, not in the gospeler. Go, Mary. Tell my brothers everything you've seen. Tell them what I have said. But not only did Mary have an assignment, do you understand Jesus had an assignment? He said, Mary, don't cling to me now. I've not yet ascended to my Father. Jesus was anxious to ascend to his Father because remember last week, he destroyed the old sacrificial system. We're reminded in Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. He became the curse. He was the guarantor of the better covenant. Once he went on the cross, the old altar in the temple was no more useful and never actually was. Not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice was paid. Now and forever, Jesus was anxious to ascend to complete that assignment. And we see why in Hebrews chapter 7. The former priests were many. They had to be because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. One more Facebook rant. We uh, tend to look at life through a selfie photo, right? You know what I mean? Look, 
the Eiffel Tower. But, but I, I can barely see the Eiffel Tower because you're taking up the whole photo with your duck face. But, but this is typical of the way we view our world. Actually, we can hardly see our world because Ian takes up the whole space. Here I am. Look, look at me. And, and the problem with that is we develop theology that is selfie theology, meaning we think about Jesus interceding. Our vision of him is the victorious high priest daily declaring the worth of Ian. You know, we, we sing selfie theology songs, right? We, 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 we love to sing about Jesus. You were like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall and thought of me above all. Finally, someone who gets how worthy I am. <laughs> That's selfie theology. I'm the only guy in the world, and Jesus thinking of me. The truth is, Yes, Jesus stands before the throne, offering sacrifice, interceding for you and for me, but he's not declaring, oh, you're so worthy. He's not there before the Father saying, oh, Ian's worth it. He was worth the sacrifice. No, he's saying, the sacrifice was worth it. The blood was worthy to cover even Ian's sins. The blood was worthy to cover a whole collection of Ian's sitting in a church service. My sacrifice was worthy. That is how he intercedes. Worthy is the blood. Worthy is the lamb. Remember, O oh Father, mercy, because the sacrifice was worthy. In 1998, Sherry and, and I were pastoring an, another church in another country. We had uh, multiple language congregations because 135 different spoken languages in this country. And we were doing tribal ministry among the original people in this country. For whatever reason, in this one village, about 80% of the villagers just came to Christ. Just not because we had amazing strategy. I wasn't even doing it. It was a Chinese businessman who just had a broken heart for the tribal people who lived out in the jungle. They had been removed from their traditional life space because it was a national park and they were put on land that had already been mined. It had already been a cut, clear cut, so, so they had difficulty finding food. They could barely grow anything, but they embraced Christ. The, the problem was, several generations ago, the, the chief headman at the time had promised if the government brought them a well, they would all convert to the majority religion. So when news got out in this village, and I don't know the name of it, we called it Kampong Satu, number one village. The government sent an evangelist there, and he held the big village rally and reminded them that you have already converted, and if you Embrace this Jesus. And by the way, he never was risen from the dead because he never really died. If you embrace him, you'll become apostates and the government will take back what they've given you. Everybody was silent. And the head man asked, what does that mean? We will knock down every house if you don't come back to our faith. Uh, what, what would you do? And then he began to shout, you believe a lie. You believe a lie. Come back to the truth and you will keep your houses. I, I heard this story and I, I just, you know, what did I know? 
I gave no advice. They decided themselves, this is what we will do. Every believer put a little white cross on their door. And they sent a message saying, we will raise our hands so you know which house to knock down. Leave our other neighbors be. They still follow your faith. But we continue to follow this outrageous belief that Jesus was God incarnate. Came, lived, died, and lives still. We've had moments of confusion, but now, at this moment, we believe. In result, by the way, you look at this house, not much, right? Our top house, not much, except it's everything they have. Everything they own is in that house. That house and 34 others, gone. And word came out, and now there's Kampong Dua, Kampong Tika, Kampong Ampat. By the way, one, two, three, four, now nine villages many of which are 100% Christian because of the testimony of these whose even their own possessions were not enough to get them to give up on the truth of the resurrection. And so I ask myself, what is this man prepared to give up? They had no motorcycles. They walked to Kampong Dua, Nobody will die for a lie. Most will not die for their possessions. That's why our walls are so strong. That's why we have grills on the windows. Most of us are not worried about our children getting stolen. It's our stuff. These Orang Asli taught me how to believe. They taught me the kind of belief that is worthy of the almighty, living God of creation, the life-giving God. They taught me this. I believe because of the power of this testimony. I believe because I've heard the Lord call my name, Ian, little one, come follow me. How will you believe? I don't know. but I don't need a folded napkin Facebook story to convince me. I am already convinced that he is real. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment as we go to the Lord in prayer. Do you realize the impact, not of having a pastor that you have to make an appointment with and go visit, but, but having a great high priest who in every moment of this service has been pleading on your behalf, Father God, my blood is worthy of these who sit in your presence. This sacrifice is sufficient. It is worthy to completely save those to whom you give this gift of turning this gift of faith. Would you be prepared on this Resurrection Sunday just to start, just to begin saying, oh God, if you are real, right now I have confusion. Come to me just like you came to that weeping woman. Let me sense you calling me. Maybe some of you grew up in church. Maybe some of you are, are like me and you, you just kind of wandered off. Maybe it wasn't even intentional. But right now, you too could say, Lord, if you would draw me to yourself, I would come home. Maybe you're here today and you are hearing a whole bunch of things 
that you can't even begin to understand. Let me say it is okay. You are not weird. You're not different. This is an outrageous message. Everything in your culture, everything in your upbringing is against everything that God would want to do in your life just because his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. I would have done it differently. But he does things as he desires because by doing things in this way, he receives glory. Not a well-cultured witness not an educated man with lots of relational and cultural authority, but ordinary people who would say, I believe this inconvenient truth through moments of confusion. I've come to believe, and I will live as if it is true. I will plan not for retirement, but far beyond retirement. I will look at my life through the lens of eternity. Father God, draw near to us now. Captivate our hearts by the miracle of the empty tomb. Allow us to sense that you are a God who notices individuals, calls each of us by name, come to me, you who are heavy laden, come to me, those who are weary, come to me, those who are wounded, because by my stripes, by my wounds, I bring healing. God, we thank you that indeed Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. We bless you for this sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let us rise and sing the song of response. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. How can it be? How can it be the one who died has borne our sin through sacrifice to conquer every sting of death? Sing, sing hallelujah. For joy awakes as dawning light when Christ's disciples lift their eyes. Alive he stands, their friend and king. Christ, Christ he is risen. Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Where doubt and darkness once had been, they saw Him and their hearts believed. But blessed are those who have not seen, yet sing hallelujah. Once bound by fear, now bold in faith, they preach the truth and power of grace. And pouring out their lives, they gained life, life everlasting. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed.
Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. The power that raised Him from the grave now works in us to powerfully save. He frees our hearts to live His grace. Go tell of His goodness. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus, sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Heaven's gates are open. Why? He's alive. He's alive. Now in heaven glorified. He's alive. He's alive. Heaven's gates are open wide. He's alive. He's alive. Now in heaven glorified. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. Join the chorus. Sing with the redeemed. Christ is risen, He's risen indeed. Now receive the benediction from Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the ship, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The service is over. Please proceed to level 3 for fellowship. Uh, just before you go, uh, let me just say uh, an additional word of welcome to those of you who are visiting us for the first time. I hope you uh, meet Sherry's friends. Where are they? Uh, anyway, I'm the guy who makes people feel awkward, so I'm looking for you. Uh, Sherry's got some friends here today. I've got Sherry. Um, also, it's Really great to see the Erdmans back with us, Doug and Joyce, former members back in the States, passing through. Good to have you folks with us. And um, I, I would like for, for Janet and Han to, to come and join me. Benedict, can you join me? Pastor Eugene, will you join me up here? Just for a second. I know this is a, a bit awkward, but I do this on purpose. There's a theological reason. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, right. That means now, because I'm embarrassed standing up here by myself. Yes, come, come and join us up here. I, I want to remind us, GBC, that we're really uh, not simply about adding more people. When God brings people to his church, he's bringing his treasure and so we often talk about membership covenants. We, you know, we, at our next QCM, we'll say our membership covenant together. We, we send our new members through uh, the study on the church, which is our new, new members class. And, and it seems like it's always the new members are told, okay, now here's your responsibility. I'm saying, church, we have responsibility to God's treasure. So in front of these two, I, I want to ask you, are you prepared to be the kind of church that would provide a safe environment for these two to grow in their faith, to exercise the spiritual gifts God has given? Are you prepared to be safe for them to express doubts when they do come? Will you be safe when they stumble forward? Will you be that kind of church? Then I want to hear you, like you mean it, say, we will. Say, we will. 
Is that enthusiastic in Singapore? <laughs> if, if you, you know, Canadians are insecure. That's why we try to be friendly. So if you would say it like, you're like Americans mean it, <laughs> say it with me. We will. Now, after this, come by and welcome these into the family of God. Thank you so much. God bless you. You're dismissed. Bless you, man. So great. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Lord, to uh, all that is around us. Uh, pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.